0: InSol International, in conjunction with the Early Research Academics Committee, presents InSol Talks. Hello, everyone. My name is Eugenio Vaccari, and I'm the chairperson of the InSol ERA subcommittee. Welcome to another episode of InSol Talks. These podcasts features conversations with some of the key insolvency figures in the world. The interviewees come from academia, practice, or both, as in the case today. I'm very pleased to be here with Hamish Anderson. Hamish is a solicitor and an insolvency practitioner. He works as a consultant for Norton Rose Fulbright, the law firm that kindly hosted our launch conference earlier this year. In his long and successful career, Hamish has been president of the Insolvency Lawyers Association and served as a member of the Insolvency Practices Council. He has worked on several high-profile cases. We hope to hear more about some of them maybe later on, mainly in the area of cross-border insolvency issues. Hamish has worked with several academic institutions, including Kingston University and Nottingham Trent University. Finally, Hamish is a strenuous supporter of early career researchers, as he has taken part to several conferences that I organize at City University of London, and the University of Essex. I have to say that I had always been impressed by his ability to present very difficult concepts, such as the issues caused by Brexit, the UK's recognition of insolvency and restructuring proceedings in Europe, in a very clear manner. Hamish, it's a real honor having you here today. Thank you. As usual, we'll start our conversation with some general questions, then we will move on to questions related to your recent publications before concluding with some more questions targeted to our audience of early career researchers. So without further ado, I would like to start with my first question. How and when did you decide to pursue your career in insolvency law and what impacted your choice?
1: Well, it's rather flattering to describe it as a choice at all. I was a newly qualified solicitor with a practice in the southwest of England, and I was doing a fairly general mix of commercial law practice in what would now be called the SME market. When the firm was approached to act for a an administrative receiver appointed by one of the clearing banks and it fell to me to do that particular job because the the partner in the firm that i was working for at that time was on holiday and so this started with a sort of caretaker role on a particular case he returned from his holiday and being the sort of man that he was instead of muscling in And taking over, he stepped back and was providing experience and guidance, but encouraging me to get on with it. What was different, I suppose, was that that particular receivership was an unusually large receivership by the standards of the region I was practicing in. And it turned out to be more or less a full-time job for about 18 months. It was a fully trading administrative receivership, building dredgers. And by the time that that job began to tail off, another and even bigger job had begun for the same administrative receiver, this time who'd been appointed as a receiver of a, a developer group of companies with interests. Uh, quite extensive interests in the southwest of England, but also outside the immediate area. And by the time I'd finished that job, I was an insolvency lawyer. I was not doing much else. I knew quite a lot about administrative receivership. And my um, experience levels weren't anything like what one might have expected from several years post-qualification, more general experience. It happened. It wasn't so much a choice; it just happened. And I found it interesting. Yeah,
0: thank you. I have to say that after having listened to some of other interviews, it seems that actually insolvency happens on people. It's not something that is deliberately chosen. But I hope that you enjoyed uh, your your trip to insolvency throughout these years.
1: Yeah, you have to have to appreciate that at the time that we're talking about, insolvency law would not have been regarded as. A recognized specialization. It was in, apart from very isolated examples at the bar and also one or two boutique practices of accountants, it's not something that would have been a recognized area of specialization in a commercial law practice.
0: Thank you. What attracts you in insolvency law compared to other fields
1: of law, if anything specific? Right. I think. What did attract me from the outset, and continued to do so throughout my career, was that you took on a new job, which had a, a definite outcome. In the case of the administrative receiverships, it was to work through the receivership, so that these were not jobs that carried baggage of client relationships over a long period. Now. That suited me. For many lawyers, the answer would be exactly the reverse, that what they get the most job satisfaction out of is the continuing client relationships and being alongside a, a company as it grows or something of that sort. But I liked the the finality of individual assignments. I liked the variety that insolvency law offered, because the phone would ring. One morning, and you'd be asked to act in respect of a new case. And then you got immediate and total immersion in a a new line of business. And one learned that first case. I learned quite a lot about dredger building. Then I learned about developers and land development. But it became, over a period of career, infinitely varied and very refreshing and the intellectual challenge in all this is that you you start each problem that's put to you with an analysis of what the answer would be as a matter of general law and then you factor in the effect of insolvency of one or more of the parties and so i suppose apart from a discrete body of legislation that's what gives the subject, its intellectual appeal.
0: Thank you. I like this picture from one, on one side, of and the finality linked to to insolvency, the other one are the intellectual challenges raised by an ever changing, an ever new topic. Because as you said, there is uh, probably there is the common aspect um, in insolvency procedures, the procedure itself. But then you need to become an expert in the, all the different areas in which these companies are practicing. So it's always a new challenge, isn't
1: it? Yes. To take an example of a business that I don't suppose I would have encountered in in any other line of work from my regional practice days, I dealt with running a casino. Now, there are quite a lot of things about running a casino that are not immediately obvious to the punter. Do you want to share any of them with us today? One interesting aspect was that the, the operation of casinos is highly regulated. The regulator, of the gaming board... I don't know if it's still called the gaming board, but it was in those days, had a very, very clear perception about the level of profitability that a particular casino should be generating. And if it was generating fractionally more than they thought it should have been, or fractionally less, that was warning signs that something, something was not right. It's a a percentage, or it was referred to as a percentage of the drop, should, should stay with the house.
0: That's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that with us. Going back to our more general questions, I would like to ask about the purposes of insolvency law. What are these purposes? Whose interests should it serve? And maybe has your view on this matter changed throughout the years or by developing more more your academic career in parallel with uh, your professional career?
1: Yes, I think it has. Insolvency law, like any other body of law, is there to serve a social purpose. And it's a question of how you prioritize different interests within that broad purpose. I think that when I started in practice as an insolvency lawyer, the focus was overwhelmingly on the maximization of creditors' interests. Then it became more focused, but only relatively so, on the interests of debtors and in rehabilitation. The modern dynamic, I think, is to elevate the social purpose over even creditors' interests. And you see that clearly with the special procedures that are dealing with uh, utilities provision and that sort of thing, where, in terms of the black letter legislation, the interests of creditors are subordinated to the public interest. But there always has been a public interest dimension because the prosecution of malpractice, the offences in the Insolvency Act, the regime for the disqualification of directors when that was introduced in 1986. Now, you have to bear in mind that I've had quite a few years of insolvency practice before the 1986 Act came along. So that, that was a sort of new dawn of thinking of the Cork Report, which preceded it. I think that the proliferation of special procedures to deal with businesses of public importance. And the examples that we've seen latterly of companies which are not put into administration but are put into compulsory liquidation with the official receiver acting with the benefit of special managers, again, because of problems about the potential liability of office holders in those cases, environmental risks um, have featured quite heavily but also because of the systemic importance of some of these businesses in sectors of industry or, or in communities. And my view is that, that that calls for a bit of more radical thought about what amounts to an insolvency procedure.
0: I'm fascinated by your answer and that's why I like having these interviews because you can really put all the pieces in the big jigsaw of insolvency law together. You can actually see people like you with so much experience in the field, academic and practice can really allow you to see the, the whole picture and not simply the bits and pieces separate and not, not together. So thanks so much for, for this answer. I think that you sort of answer the next question, which is to what extent has insolvency law changed since you start working and or doing research in the area? Maybe you can give us some, some of your insights, maybe with reference only or mainly to practice, because you mentioned at the beginning that when you started working in insolvency, there weren't that many people that were doing this for a living. What has changed and how has it changed throughout the years?
1: Well, the law has become immensely more detailed. When I started doing insolvency work in English law, your insolvency legislation occupied a relatively small part of the Companies Act. You had the Bankruptcy Act of 1914 and Williams on bankruptcy the only major insolvency text, actually. At that stage, the law has changed by becoming much more detailed. It's also become, to some extent, a political football as as it has been used to push a particular agenda in one direction or another. I wouldn't want to overplay that because it seems to me to have, in practice, more to do with the timing of government interest in particular topics than the substance. But there are issues bubbling away about the extent to which you should have transaction avoidance laws strengthened. Some of the interest of government in that sort of subject, I think, is reactive to public scandals. I think that the nature of practice has changed. It's much more regulated than it was when I started. I mentioned that my initial experience was in dealing with administrative receivership work, which wasn't even called administrative receivership in those days. That, of course, has largely disappeared in the meantime. And the other change of big change in law, I suppose, is the extent to which the legislation now is expanded to em- embrace a number of procedures designed to achieve restructuring and rehabilitation, which were, well, th- those are po- post 86 developments, really. Although English law was, was always more liberal, I think, in its approach that even pre-'86, the concept of a bankrupt's discharge from bankruptcy existed in, in English law, whereas it didn't in some continental jurisdictions.
0: Absolutely. I come from a country which introduced this charge for people back in 2012. You mentioned legislation, and I, I guess that you mentioned domestic changes to the law, But these changes have also been influenced to some extent from changes that occurred at the international or regional level, so the UNCTRAL and the European Union. To what extent have the the work of these organizations affected the way in which our law, English law, is shaped?
1: Um, Well, I think perhaps you take both those measures separately for these purposes. The European regulation, which we lived with for quite a long time before Brexit, was a measure designed to avoid forum shopping within the EU. And there was a trade-off that it defined which courts would have jurisdiction to open proceedings and accorded EU-wide recognition two proceedings that had been properly opened, in return. The interesting thing, I think, about the EU regulation has always been its introspective focus. It's not about cross-border insolvency in the sense that we would think of it as a global issue because it is absolutely silent about the treatment of proceedings that are being opened outside the EU, even if they are of profound significance within one or more member states. Uncitral, on the other hand, is the product of a much more liberal approach and genuinely looking at cross-border insolvency as a global issue and What it does, of course, is to provide a pathway to recognition of foreign insolvency proceedings, but doesn't seek to dictate where proceedings can be opened as a matter of domestic law. So there's a fundamental difference between the two measures in that respect. What they have in common is the concept of Comey. And I think that the concept of Comey is pervasive. And I can see that becoming increasingly important in English domestic law. It won't replace, English law will not replace the restrictive approach of the EU regulation, which requires that main proceedings are open where the centre of main interests is, is to be found. But we get the relevance of COMEY to recognition issues, courtesy of the cross-border insolvency regulations, from wherever those proceedings arise. And I think it's foreseeable that the location of a company's COMEY, or debtor's COMEY, I should say, will be increasingly relevant when the court considers its discretion to open English insolvency proceedings in respect of a foreign debtor.
0: I guess that speaking of Comey, a related issue is also identifying the Comey, because I think that it's becoming increasingly difficult, especially for certain types of companies, to identify clearly one I think I read some papers saying that it's increasingly common right now for companies to have potentially more than one comi throughout the world for the nature of their own business. What do you think about
1: that? I can see that as a matter of theory. In practice, the location of a company's comi is pretty obvious, usually.
0: So I would like to move on to the last question on this general part, which is about the changes or trends that you currently see occurring in the economy, social life, politics or the way the business is done. What do you think are these major changes and how do you think will be the the impact on the way in which insolvency law and insolvency research is done?
1: We've touched on this already. I think it's the changes or trends have been towards rehabilitation of debtors and restructuring proceedings, and I look at the the 2020 Corporate Insolvency and in Governance Act, and look at particularly two measures that were prioritised for introduction in that legislation: the the moratorium procedure, which, as I understand it, is still very little used, and by contrast. The restructuring plans in Part 26A of the Companies Act 2006, which have been widely embraced by the practitioner community with a high rate of success, and it's it's reinvigorated. If indeed that was really needed, interest in schemes of arrangement, which have gone from being in my practising career a completely dead letter to of being taken out and dusted off to deal with insurance insolvencies. And then the rest in terms of restructuring. The, the restructuring plans address the, the perceived deficiencies in, in the scheme legislation, and you now get practitioners choosing one or other according to circumstances. And that's been pretty successful, I think. The, the tougher nut to crack... Is extending meaningful restructuring procedures to the SME market where cost is an inhibitor. And also, I think um, one has to recognize that doing creative, constructive restructuring work calls for a different range of skills from simply executing a formal insolvency process. And not everybody has got those skills. And I suspect it's easier to access those skills if you're looking at the top end of the market than at the, the bottom end. But the fact is that I, I was told the other day, and I, I don't know whether this is, this is right or not, but it was said, that there have only been... Say between six and twelve moratorium cases since that procedure was introduced. Well, that is not a success.
0: I think that in terms of figures, that uh, there is for all the measures introduced with the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act, we are falling below the expectation originally set by the government. I think that is also for Part Twenty Six A plans that we are not seeing as many as originally planned. But I think that they spoke either to Christina Fitzgerald and. With uh, Lazelle Jacobs and Peter Walton uh, from Wolverhampton, that they have conducted an interim report on the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act. And they are saying that actually the numbers are going up for both the moratorium and Part 26A restructuring plans. Not sure if this is enough to say this is a success, uh, but uh, probably it takes a bit of time to become familiar with. Well,
1: you're ab- absolutely right. I, and one could exemplify that by looking at the use of administration in the early years of the 1986 Act, which was pitiful, frankly. But on the other hand, you can look at Part A1 moratoriums, the the procedure that was replaced by the Seagull procedure, which never got off the ground. I think as far as restructuring plans are concerned, it's very difficult to judge the success of that procedure purely on terms of numbers, because of this ability to still do a scheme in some cases, which, if the scheme legislation wasn't on the books, would have been done as a Part 26A restructuring plan.
0: Thank you. And I guess that also the focus on small and medium enterprises is another of the key issues, and you rightly mentioned them, because I think that way ahead is how do we make these procedures more available for SMEs? Now, moving on from general questions to your job in particular, you qualified as a lawyer and later you became an insolvency practitioner. In the UK, most insolvency practitioners are accountants. Have you found it more difficult to be an insolvency practitioner with your legal background? And what advice would you give to a law student interested in becoming an insolvency practitioner here in the UK?
1: Well, when I qualified as a lawyer, there was no qualification to hold an insolvency Appointment. But when the licensing procedure was introduced by the 1986 Act, and it didn't take effect immediately, there was a process by which the recognized professional bodies could grandfather in suitably experienced practitioners. And I became an insolvency practitioner by that route. And frankly, primarily. As a badge of experience of working in in the field, and i mean coincidentally, the introduction of licensing of insolvency practitioners that becoming available to lawyers was the spur which led to the formation of the insolvency lawyers association and the emergence of insolvency law as a distinct legal subject for specialization. It remained the case that most of the solicitors who gained licenses in that way, and indeed quite a few who who subsequently passed the JIEB exams, didn't take appointments because they just used it as a means of acquiring and demonstrating expertise. Uh, What I would say to a lawyer now who wanted to become an insolvency practitioner and be an active appointment taker, that they should get work experience in a practice where appointments are being taken. Because in legal practice, we're acquainted with the rules, but there's really quite a lot of compliance work that just passes, passes us by as lawyers and is dealt with in the appointment taking firms, which are in the main accountancy firms. I don't think I would try to, in the, in the present highly regulated environment, I don't think I would try to set up as a, as a appointment taking insolvency practitioner without that practical experience gained elsewhere. I think it'd be high risk process. I should say that when the Law Society ceased to be a recognized professional body, I gave up my license.
0: Thank you. Now, I would like to speak a bit more about your experience. You have experience in all types of insolvency and restructuring procedures, but eventually you specialize in cross-border insolvency matters. What is particular about these procedures? And for instance, do you feel that parties are more argumentative in cross-border domestic matters? How do you deal with specific problems raised by cross-border procedures?
1: When I said earlier about the interest of insolvency work uh, as a legal subject is that you, you have to start by forming a view about what the answer to the problem in question, would be as a matter of general law. And then you have to factor in the effect of insolvency of one or more of the parties. I think with cross-border insolvency law, it becomes like three-dimensional chess, because the overlay to that, what's the answer of general law, what's the effect of insolvency law, or insolvency proceedings, is to ask yourself, which... Legal system applies. It's not a clear methodology. In a domestic case, I think it is a clear methodology. You start by asking what the position is in general law, you then factor in the, fe- the effect of insolvency. But when you turn to the conflict of law issues, that can cut across both those earlier questions. Because you need to know what is the governing law to find out what the answer is as a matter of general law. And you need to know where the applicable insolvency proceedings are or may be going to take place in order to work out what the effects of insolvency are going to be. And it's not, of course, completely cut and dried because different legal systems can produce different answers.
0: Thanks, Hamish. I would like now to move to publications. And despite being a a practitioner, if I may use this term, you have published extensively throughout your career. One of the first books that I remember reading for my research is The Framework of Corporate Insolvency Law, which you published with Oxford University Press in 2017. In this book, you provide a critical examination of modern English corporate insolvency law from both conceptual and functional points of view. Could you tell us a bit more about the book? And also, do you think that some of its conclusions need updating in light of the changes introduced recently to the corporate English insolvency framework?
1: Yes, uh, it certainly needs updating, but I'll come, come back to that.
0: So you're announcing now a second edition of the
1: book. No, no I'm not. I think it's, uh, that uh, is probably something for someone else to do if it's thought appropriate. But that book came relatively late in my career. It was it was a retirement project, actually. When I retired as a partner from Northern Rose Fulbright, it provided me with the opportunity to write a book that I'd had in mind for some time before, and indeed had on occasions sketched out the text of of one or two chapters, only to get blown off course. So for the script to to gather dust, there were two, I suppose, factors. In leading that the idea of the book was that when I started as an insolvency lawyer doing the dredgel receivership, for instance, there weren't many books, hardly any actually, apart from Williams on bankruptcy, so like most insolvency lawyers of of my generation, I was self-taught or largely self-taught and the idea of the book had always been to write the, the book that I wish I'd had to understand the, the why the law took its shape. For instance, I, I encountered quite early on in, in practice rules against preferences. Well, you need to think a bit about why you have preference rules, and most legal systems do. It's virtually a universal characteristic of insolvency law. But these rules are not just arcane tripwires to catch out the unwary. They serve a distinct function in that case, principally, to uh, give effect to the principle of pari-passu distribution and uh, prevent unfair advantage. So it was to delve into the rationale for why the law took the shape that it did, It led to wider considerations about meaning of insolvency and meaning of insolvency proceedings and the like. But that's where it came from. And the two particular spurs were, one, I had a a colleague, Richard Kalman, who is himself a significant academic and practitioner. And he's always encouraged me to have a go at this one. And the second one was my wife who said, well, just what are you going to do in retirement? And I said, well, I might, I suppose, write the book. I was on the ropes at that stage.
0: So she was concerned in having you around all the time?
1: Yeah, quite. I knew people at OUP pretty well, and they'd known that I had this project in mind and had said from time to time, well, we we are interested if you do it. So I went to OUP and said, I, I think I am going to do it. <laughs> and um, so that, that, that's how that book came. Does it need updating? Yes. One of the things that every author of legal academic literature has to, has to live with is pronouncements made, which are proved wrong by subsequent um, court decisions, Uh, I can say that uh, framework lasted five days after after publication, (laughs) because I deal at one stage with the effect of liquidation on the liabilities of a company. And I said that the liabilities as such survive liquidation, and uh, they are not simply replaced by rights of participation in a liquidation proceeding. And uh, that was a proposition that was doubted by a majority of the Supreme Court in the, the Lehman Currency Conversion Claims case. But it, it's a, it's an interesting topic. I've, certainly, I would have to write that little bit. It's, certainly, it's only a page or so of commentary. I would have to write that rather differently now. Although I think I would stick to the proposition that the liabilities survive. In other words, I would favor the views of the minority in the Supreme Court. There we are I mean the other the, the big area is Sega the twenty twenty Act this This book was written at a time when I was able not to treat schemes of arrangement as an insolvency procedure. I think were I writing it now, there would have to be a distinct chapter on Schemes and Part 26A restructuring plans, there would have to be commentary on the moratorium procedure, which I was able to dispose of rather curtly in the original drafting of the Schedule A1 procedure on the basis that it was just not used in practice. So, though, there the would need to be commentary on that. But more fundamentally, I mean, in in talking about the nature of English insolvency proceedings, I asserted what was true then, that uh, English law doesn't have debtor-in-possession proceedings. That is no longer true. And so conceptually, that would require rethinking. This whole business about insolvency proceedings uh, and are these procedures which subordinate creditors' interests true insolvency proceedings, which I think they have to be treated as such. But that too requires some adjustment of the conceptual framework.
0: These are all very interesting questions and topics. So so we look forward to a second edition, and uh, I hope that you will be in charge of uh, that second edition, or at least that you will tell us who will be in charge of that second edition when you will decide that it's time to, to revise your book. I would like to continue a bit more on publication strategies because we have a lot of members, uh, especially from outside the UK, that are practitioners and uh, researchers. So they are academics and practitioners. It's it's quite uncommon. at, at least I for a person like like me, I mean who moved from practice to to academia. Now, I mean I'm only an academic, but it's quite common in other jurisdictions to be a practitioner and an academic. So. When you are a practitioner and an academic, you have two full-time jobs. How can you find time to actually add a third full-time job, like starting to uh, think about publishing a book like the one that you published? And what strategies do you use to actually find time to, to write down your thoughts?
1: Well, I didn't find time to write a framework, but I did find time to write, write other things. I, the, Crude answer, I think, is that the demands of academic work were always subordinated to practice. They had to be. I did the academic work when I had the capacity to do it. As to coming up with publication projects, I would caution against practitioners simply writing up particular problems that have crossed their own desks and which have struck them as being interesting points. I have done it, but there is a danger that you're picking up something about which you're not completely objective and which is, in fact, too detailed to be appropriate for a publication. As to what I did and when I did it, some of what I've done is, I'm one of the editors of Lightman and Moss, for instance. Now, the input to that title is dictated as much as anything else by the publishers requirements. The other thing that I did do frequently was that in practice, you get asked to speak at conferences. On topics. And actually, my experience is anyway that it takes quite a lot of work to prepare to give what may be a comparatively uh, casual presentation, but it still requires quite a lot of work. I very often combined the preparation of the talk of that sort with writing an article. On the same subject, which might, which might, in fact, be more detailed. You've done the research and you've thought about it, and then you deliver the presentation. But you, you actually, the the real hard thought has gone into the written product.
0: Yeah, you usually have much more to say than the twenty or fifteen minutes allocated to your presentation. <laughs> we all agree on that. With, with
1: somebody holding up something that says five minutes. Five <laughs> yeah. minutes.
0: Well, all the bells. Amazing. Thanks so much. Now, moving on to the part on advice. So before concluding, actually, this uh, this conversation. What advice would you give to a smart, driven student or researcher about to enter the professional world, and what advice should they ignore? I think that you just you covered a bit of it earlier on when you were speaking about a lawyer who wants to become an insolvency practitioner.
1: Yeah, I think I would say, and this nothing. Very special about insolvency work in this respect, but for smart-driven professional making their way, you have to be prepared for hard work. You have to be quite thick-skinned about clients' demands, and clients are not always very good at even recognizing, let alone appreciating, good work. But to be true to yourself and what is in your own best interests long-term, don't compromise on the quality of the work that you do. As to what they should ignore, ignore the instruction which one gets from time to time to do something that is good enough. Thanks for the advice. It's, it's a very
0: difficult one to, to take a full implement because at times you really need to do something And you struggle to say, "Is this good enough?" And sorry if I'm using what I should not use as an expression. Never try to compromise. is a very good advice. Thanks so much. Moving to early career researchers, uh, do you have any specific advice for them? Mistakes that should avoid, opportunities they should take to have in this this case a successful academic career.
1: Well, with my background, I'm perhaps not the best placed person to answer that question. But what's always struck me about insolvency law in an English context is that it's unusual the extent to which the academic and practicing worlds know each other and feed off each other. And I've always thought that's very healthy. Where I think the academic side make the particular contribution is thinking outside the box. I think as practitioners, we struggle to raise our sights and see the the really big picture. In my case, I got some exposure to that from really quite early on by being involved in consultations and law reform projects of one sort or another. But, and the interaction with policy personnel at the insolvency service is, is invaluable from that point of view, and and indeed, obviously, with, with the academic world. But I think, as a pure practitioner, you sometimes struggle to come up with a radical proposition about an aspect of the legal system which is not fit for purpose. Thanks, Hamish.
0: This concludes the questions that I shared with you. I would like now to move to two final questions again, on not disclosed before, but that can help the listeners to know a bit more about you in general. So the first question that I would like to to ask you is, what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments that you have ever made? And I'm not necessarily speaking of investments of money. It could be time, it could be energy, it could be anything else.
1: Well, in terms of my career, I think it was doing the academic work because that forced me to think about things much more deeply than I would otherwise have done. There's nothing, you know this as well as I, there's, there's nothing quite like putting it down on paper to force you to crystallize your thoughts. I also, I benefited enormously from Working with some extremely able practicing lawyers in the course of my career, both at the bar and on the solicitor side of the profession. So, in terms of intellectual investment, that's what I I'd identify.
0: Thanks, Amish. My final question for today: In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit? Has most improved your life and why?
1: Oh, well, those five years include a period in which, throughout which, I've been a consultant to oh. Montrose Fulbright. And paradoxically, the lockdowns with COVID put an end to my travelling to London for meetings and going to the office. So I I have latterly been doing all my consultancy work from a barn in Cornwall, but my desk is set up as it was in the London office with indeed the same bits of kit which came down in boxes and were plugged in down here. And the difference is in a work or words quality of life i'm not sorry to stop weekly commuting to london
0: thanks hamish i still love london so i would weekly commute to london <laughs> but i see your point and thanks so much in general for all the answers and for this interview it has been really really amazing we really appreciate your feedback and we thank you really a lot for having been here today and shared your experience with us thank you it's been a pleasure If you have enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. Contact us on LinkedIn and Twitter at InSoul International using the hashtag InSoulTalks. The information provided is intended for a general audience and reflects the personal views of the participants. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Thank you for listening.